Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others, to test him, kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against itself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever, whoever does not gather with me scatters. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put into order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Thank you, Blakely, and all the kids joining us this morning. We are so glad that you are with us as we worship the Lord this morning together. Um, I had this moment last week where we were having our congregational meeting and then the pitch-in downstairs, and uh, Pastor Eric and I were standing over by the window uh, up on this floor looking down into the gym. And as I looked down, I saw all these little people running around, around bigger people and tables, and I I thought to myself, what an assembly that the Lord has brought together. Only God could have done that. So I rejoice over each of you, and I rejoice that the Lord gave us another morning to uh, sit under his word together. Uh, parents, just a, p a public service announcement. Uh, as you just heard the text read this morning, uh, the text has um, some themes in it relating to uh, spiritual beings that some children might find a little bit scary. If you think that might be the case, it's quite all right while I'm praying maybe to uh, excuse yourself um, and uh, uh, find your way to a different part of the building. I'll not do my best not to make it any more intense than it needs to be, but just make that consideration. Uh, now, why don't we all start uh, our time together in the text by um, going to the Lord in a word of prayer. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that it is not something that any of us would have put together, that it addresses us in the deepest and most profound of levels, even, even addressing the dark corners of our hearts in this world uh, so that we might see the true light of Christ. Uh, we pray this morning that you would help us to see our risen Lord Jesus, the King of the kingdom of heaven, and that you would help us 
to choose to abide with him and find full security knowing he lives within us. Uh, would you help us as we walk through this word, world to remain faithful by his word? Uh, we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. In 1858, Abraham Lincoln stood up in the Illinois legislature and he said this, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become wholly one or the other. Uh, the not yet President Abraham Lincoln made a bold statement about the state of the country and what lay ahead for it. And history would show that he proved to be right. Uh, the issue of slavery required people to make a choice. Uh, there was a collision between two Americas, pro-slave and anti-slave. And as a result, no one could remain on the fence. You had to choose a side. And at the end, only one America could remain. Uh, now, of course, Abraham Lincoln didn't come up with that statement himself. A house divided itself can't stand. He, he was quoting Jesus and making a sort of application toward the nation of the United States. Um, we live in a time, just like every age before us, since Jesus walked amongst us, uh, where there are some that want to remain neutral toward Jesus. Uh, they like his moral teachings. Uh, they like looking up to him as a sort of revolutionary hero. And yet they don't want to fully commit to being a part of his kingdom and kneeling before his lordship. But this morning, we'll see that Jesus doesn't give us that option, uh, that he brings a collision that requires a decision from each and every one of us. Where will we stand, with Jesus or against him? Uh, that's what we'll see as we move through this text, uh, answering three questions, three questions each one of us must answer to be able to clarify how we relate to Jesus. Uh, the, those three questions are as follows. First, in 14 through 20, it's a question, what power is at work? What power is at work? Uh, second, in 15 through, um, I'm sorry, 21 through 23, which side are you on? Which side are you on? And then finally, in 24 through 26, who lives in you? Who lives in you? Uh, and the main point this morning is this. Uh, when kingdoms collide, you have to decide, will you abide with Jesus? Uh, let's begin that first section, 14 through 21, answering the question, what power is at work? Uh, if you've been with us in Luke's gospel, you'll know that there have been a series of skirmishes between two kingdoms in the coming of Jesus. Uh, the kingdom of heaven represented by King Jesus and the kingdom of Satan, which is being invaded. Uh, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, for Satan went and tempted him in the wilderness, only to be overcome by Jesus' use of the word of God. Uh, then Jesus started casting out Satan's minions from people. Uh, back in chapter 4, uh, he healed a man of a demon, uh, then in one evening, he healed a whole series of people, like an assembly line of exorcism, casting out demons after demon all night long. 
then there was that climactic moment with the man uh, outside the tombs in Gerasenes. Uh, a whole legion of demons inhabiting one person, and yet Jesus overcame them with just a few words out of his mouth. Well, those skirmishes are, are all part of a larger battle because the coming of Jesus heralds the coming of the rule and reign of God into this world. And our text this morning shows us what that collision implies for us. Uh, verse 14, Luke tells us of another uh, ex uh, conflict between Jesus and the servants of Satan. Now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the people marveled. Uh, Luke is less concerned with the details of this exorcism than the conflict that arises as a result of it. Uh, Jesus heals a man that couldn't talk. That's important. What's far more important is all the chatter that results from this. Uh, Jesus is responded to by the people there with a mixture of skepticism and cynicism. Uh, the people marveled, but then verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. Uh, the people's response was mixed after their initial amazement wore off. Uh, some of them slandered Jesus. Uh, they said, well, clearly Jesus is casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul. Um, that term Beelzebul goes back to the Old Testament. Uh, there was a pagan god called Baal that the Israelites were constantly dealing with, his worshipers and the temptation to go worship him. Uh, and so in 1 Kings, there's this one section where uh, the Israelites have started calling Baal, Baalzebul, which is a way of insulting him as the king of the dung heap. Uh, or as you, you might have heard the colloquial term, the Lord of the flies. Where do flies like to live? On the dung heap. Well, by Jesus' day, that term, Beelzebul, became a shorthand for Satan. Uh, so in essence, the people are saying, oh, sure, Jesus is casting out demons because he has satanic power at his disposal. That was the slander. Uh, the skepticism is a little more subtle. Uh, there are some people there who kept seeking for him a sign from heaven. Uh, they saw what Jesus did. They saw the proof of the man that was mute now talking. And their response was, do it again, Jesus. Uh, this time, do it the way we say it should be done, to prove for us. Give us a reason to believe. Well, in response to both the skepticism and the slander, Jesus responds uh, in a way that I think is unusual to our ears. Uh, we often think of Jesus as mainly being very earnest and speaking from the heart, and he certainly does a lot of that. Uh, but Jesus' response here is an analytical, logical argument. Three ways he rebuts the slander and the skepticism of those uh, before him. Uh, first, he points out that their objection lacks sense. Uh, that's what he says in verses 17 through 18. Uh, but he, knowing their hearts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? 
For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebul. His logic is pretty simple. Uh, Satan and his kingdom have an MO of misery. Uh, They are here to steal and kill and destroy. They love it when someone is afflicted for a lifetime and is unable to speak or act or respond to God in faith. So how does it make any sense that if someone comes and thwarts their plans by healing someone of a demon, that that is somehow Satan's power at work? Uh, That makes as much sense as a football player tackling his own teammate. It's completely without sense. Your objection falls completely flat. Second, uh, he tells them that their accusation lacks consistency in verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Uh, Back in those days, uh, the Jews had an understanding that, yes, there were very real beings uh, called demons, uh, evil spirits that could possess a person and cause them great harm. Uh, They also had an understanding that it was possible to cast out those demons. Uh, There were people that were professional exorcists that would go around attempting to do so. Now, apparently, they had some success. don't know exactly how that happened, but according to Jesus, there were at least some that the Jews there would have known did this work to thwart Satan and his minions by casting out demons. Jesus points out, if you're okay with your own kin casting out demons, you have to be okay with me doing the same. You're being judged by your acceptance of your other Israelites who thwart Satan in this way. His third rebuff is in verse 20. It's that your accusation lacks perspective. But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Uh, Jesus tells them that they are missing the big picture of what's happening here. Uh, They have seen this mighty miracle that's occurred, but they've missed the big thing that God is doing. He says that his casting out demons happens by a different source of power, certainly not by Satan. It is the very work of God. Uh, That phrase, the finger of God, brings to mind the book of Exodus. Uh, There's this moment, uh, Moses has been facing down with Pharaoh And he's been telling him that he's got to let God's people go or these terrible plagues will come upon him. And and each time, Pharaoh refuses and hardens his heart. Uh, Well, the third time he does that, uh, God does a miracle with gnats. Uh, Those gnats go and they bite and they get in everything. And in this case, Pharaoh's magicians are unable to replicate the miracle like they could the first two times. And when they're unable to do so, they turn to Pharaoh and they say, Surely this is the finger of God that did this. Uh, Jesus uses the exact same phrase uh, to say that this is God's work and God's power through God's anointed Messiah. Uh, Why is Satan and why are his demons being sent running? It's because the time of God's rule and reign are here in the coming of Jesus. If only they had eyes of faith they wouldn't be attributing what he's doing to Satan. They would be bowing down before the prince of heaven in worship. 
Now, as I'm thinking about applying this section to us, I don't think that many of us are tempted to apply the works of Jesus to Satan in exactly the same way. We're not saying uh, Jesus did something by the power of Beelzebub. So how in the world do we respond to it? I, I think there's two ways we could think of this. Uh, one is to recognize that Jesus is still being slandered and still receiving skepticism to this day. Uh, you don't have to work very hard to find examples of Jesus being slandered in our day and age. Uh, you can open up your web browser and chances are you'll find some example. Uh, usually it's Christians receiving hostility um, as the objects that are uh, really, uh, it's really Jesus himself who's being defamed though. Uh, our, saw an article just the, this week, um, a Nevada uh, education board uh, making a decision to cut off a relationship with a Christian university. Uh, for years, they've been receiving student teachers very fruitfully from this university, uh, but now the school board has shifted its political stances, and so one of the uh, board members pointed out that this Christian university has a statement of faith on it that says that the people there are going to live out biblical values and faith in Jesus in everything they do. And so that board member said, that means that Christians are not safe to have around children. Now that's slander, Jesus's way, if I've ever heard it. Uh, my guess is you can find lots of examples of it and probably makes us angry when we read it. That's not a wrong reaction. And yet realize for 2000 years now, Jesus has been slandered by all types of people. He's gotten pretty used to it by this point, and he's perfectly capable of clearing his own name, even when we aren't able to with our limited resources. Uh, Jesus is being slandered. I, I think more often, though, inside the church, we see him receiving skepticism. Think about how easy it is uh, to see the works of Jesus among us and to rationalize it away as some sort of sociological or psychological phenomenon at work. Uh, maybe you see someone come into a church, uh, give their life to Christ, uh, show some level of repentance and faith, and start attending church regularly and reading the Bible. You start having thoughts about them. Oh, sure, they're going to church. I know what's really going on. Uh, he's just interested in someone in that congregation. He's just trying to get a date. Oh, no, no, I, I know what it is. It's just his guilt. He's just feeling guilty because of something he's done. He's trying to feel catharsis. And he's, so he's partaking of the opium of the masses. Oh, that testimony, I, I'm sure that's not really how it happened. Uh, they're, they're just trying to manipulate me emotionally by telling the story that way. I'm sure there's some other less exciting truth behind it. If we're not careful, when we hear testimonies of the way that Jesus saves people, we could very easily rationalize all the power right out of it and be left with nothing left with psychology and sociology and every other study of people and what we're like that you can think of. Now, of course, we need to be discerning. I'm not for a second saying that we should not ask questions or think carefully. But we should also be quick to celebrate when we see the very power of God amongst us. And where is that more evident than ever than when Jesus sees fit to save someone? 
Uh, you can see this at broader trends as well. Uh, this week, the uh, church staff went out to see the movie Jesus Revolution. Highly recommend it if you have not uh, had a chance to see it yet. Uh, it tells the story of what happened in the 1970s as uh, a movement, the hippies, uh, with a lot of very obvious sins to all the Christians living in that time, um, started to respond to the message of the gospel in a way that made many people very uncomfortable. Now, with history, as, as the hindsight of history, it's much easier to look back and see the work of Jesus at work without skepticism. But living in that moment, many Christians had trouble seeing the work that Jesus was doing. And yet, here we are today. Many of, some of you in this room are the fruit of that work of Jesus in saving people in, the, in that very movement of God. Uh, in all of this, I hope you don't want to be skeptical and cynical about anything you see Jesus do. Would you be quick to rejoice and slow to try and throw water on something when Je someone's proclaiming the name of Christ or trying to live a life for Christ, however imperfectly? Let's be quick to see the finger of God saving sinners, and be slower to try and pass judgment about the way those sinners respond. I think one way that we might also see this at work comes in our prayer life. Uh, last week, we heard a sermon all about how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Uh, but if you're skeptical about uh, how Jesus works in your life when you pray, it's a recipe for flat-out unbelief and cynicism to take hold in your heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis points out how this happens in a, a book called Screwtape Letters. It's a really fascinating bit of fiction. It's imagining two demons writing correspondence back and forth about how they're tempting one particular man. Uh, one of those demons writes this. Don't forget to use the heads I win, tails you lose argument. If the thing he prays for doesn't happen, then that is one more proof that prayers don't work. If it does happen, he will, of course, be able to see some of the causes which led up to it, and therefore, it would have happened anyway. And thus, a granted prayer becomes just as good a proof as a denied one that prayers are ineffective. See how that can happen in your own heart? Uh, you pray earnestly for something, and God answers with a no, and you say, oh, I knew praying was useless. Or maybe you pray earnestly for something, and it does happen. And instead of stopping and giving God the glory and rejoicing that Jesus is at work in your life, instead you say, oh, well, it would have happened whether I prayed or not. Either way, you slide further into cynicism and skepticism and unbelief. Uh, let's not have that heart among us. Let's be quick to notice the things Jesus does and rejoice over them. Because this world we live in and this life we are called to live has too many enemies and too many difficulties for us to allow our own hearts to be counted among them. First, you need to ask, what is the source of power at work amongst us? Second, you need to ask, which side are you on? Verses 21 through 23. Which side are you on? Uh, in the Civil War, there was a dynamic the towns on the border of the conflict who saw the collision were forced into the decision of which side they would be on more acutely. 
Uh, You can't remain on the fence when the guns are blazing right outside your door. Uh, Jesus makes that exact point in verses 21 through 23. The conflict is already here. It's just a question of which side you are going to be on. He tells a parable that at first sounds very odd. I'll read it, verses 21 and 22. When a strong man fully armed guards his own palace, his goods are safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overcomes him, he takes away his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoil. Uh, Many Christians struggle with what Jesus is saying here um, because it sure sounds like he's describing himself as a sort of burglar. Um, There's a man who has a, a lot of treasure, so he stays up through the night with his sword and armor on to defend that treasure. Only someone bigger and badder shows up at his door, knocks him out, and takes his stuff. And at the end of the day, he's left penniless. What in the world is Jesus trying to say with this? Well, I think the whole context of this collision between him and Satan, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, makes plain that what he is saying is that he has arrived for a purpose. He's here to plunder Satan's kingdom. Uh, He's here to punch him in the mouth and take his stuff for his own. Now, what is that stuff that he's taking from Satan? Well, it's, it's people. It's souls. It's citizens that are right now in Satan's kingdom that Jesus has come to take from Satan and bring into his own kingdom. Uh, Jesus accomplished this in the good news that we call the gospel. Uh, That's the story of how the very king of heaven came to earth on a mission to conquer enemy territory. Uh, He came to defeat the devil and all of his demons And he did that in the most unusual way, not with swords and spears. Uh, He achieved victory by allowing himself to be killed on a cross. Uh, At the cross, Jesus defeated one of Satan's most potent weapons by giving himself for the sins of all that would come to the Father through him. Jesus assured once and for all that Satan's accusations would no longer have any sticking power. And then Jesus did something else. He rose from the dead. And in so doing, he took Satan's even more potent weapon, the fear of death, from him. So at the cross and in the resurrection, the very moment where Satan assumed that he was slaying the Son of God and therefore assuring victory, Satan, in fact, was once and for all defeated. The kingdom of heaven is assured to be victorious over the kingdom of the prince of the power of the air. All that's left to decide is which side you will be on. Uh, That's Jesus' application for this truth. He says it right there in verse 23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Every collision results in a decision. If you've seen the reality that Jesus is the son from heaven come to defeat Satan, you have a choice you have to make. According to the Bible, we are all on our own citizens of Satan's kingdom. Uh, We are the sons of disobedience, following after the supposed God of this world. You can either choose to remain under Satan's rule and one day find the MO of misery that he has in store for you. Or you can accept 
the offer of Jesus to come be a part of his kingdom and to be freed from Satan and his evil powers forever. Uh, Friend, if you've been on the fence about Jesus, uh, know that this morning Jesus is confronting you with that very decision. Uh, Sooner or later, you've got to make a choice. You're either on his side or you're on Satan's side. Which is it going to be? Uh, You're in a room full of people who have some time or the other have made that choice for themselves, who decided to put their trust in Jesus and to follow him as citizens of his kingdom. Uh, I remember when that happened for me uh, 18 years ago. uh, I certainly didn't understand the gravity of what it was happening in the spiritual realm when I chose to bow my knee to Jesus in repentance and faith. Uh, But I've seen the way that he has freed me from Satan and the ways he's changed the desires of my heart, and the way he's given me a home with the people of God. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, would you consider this choice that is before you? This kingdoms that, these kingdoms that have collided mean that you have to decide where you stand with Jesus. Don't put off your decision. You don't know how long you'll have. But you do know that right now the offer is open to you. Would you respond with faith? Would you turn to Jesus? If you don't know how to do that after the service, just turn to anyone that's sitting next to you. Chances are they're a Christian. Ask them two questions. Uh, How is it that you made the choice to follow Jesus? And how can I do it myself? I guarantee you they would love to answer that question if you would ask. Now to all of us who are Christians, let's realize That once we have chosen to follow Jesus, to be on his side, there is another thing that we must do, and that is choose to abide with him. Uh, This is our third and final point this morning. A question to answer. Who lives in you? Who lives in you? Uh, Jesus ends this section with a warning. It's a, a very odd parable about a house uh, that finds itself with a very, very miserable occupant. Verse 24, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the person is worse than the first. Well, this is an odd parable that Jesus says for sure. What in the world is he talking about? Well, it imagines a person's heart and soul as a house that is inhabited by a demon. Uh, For a reason we're not told, that demon decides to go off on a little trip uh, it goes off into waterless places. That's just a shorthand way of saying the, the desert. It wanders around the desert for a while and says, you know what, I'm gonna, I liked where I was before. I'm going to come back to that house, see if it's still available. And when it comes back, it finds this person's heart moving ready. Uh, in fact, since it's been gone, the place has been cleaned up. It's been swept, uh, swept out and it's put in order, which means it's the perfect place for a demon party to occur. So it invites seven other evil spirits to come and they all inhabit this person's soul. 
And according to Jesus, the end result of it is worse than it was at the beginning. Would have been better off with just one demon than eight living inside of him. Now, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? I think the best way to understand this is Jesus is warning about experiencing something of the power of God without receiving the presence of God to live inside of us. Uh, it's one thing to experience a fleeting sense of freedom from Satan and his clutches. Uh, maybe someone who's uh, addicted to drugs, who for a time is able to put off that habit and get their life in order. Uh, maybe even coming to church helps them to do that. And yet, if all that happens is their heart and soul are emptied of the evil influences, and they are never filled up with something else, then one day something much worse could happen. According to Jesus, someone will one day live in our souls. The only question is, who will it be? Uh, we obviously don't want Satan and his minions living inside us, which is why it's such good news that Jesus has promised that for each and every person that puts their trust in him, that he and the Father will come and live in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. That if we respond in faith to Jesus, when he frees us from the power of Satan, that we don't, doesn't leave us as some empty vessel. That he comes and he fills us and lives with us and promises to remain with us forever. You see, we have to decide, but more important than that even is, if we will abide with Jesus forever. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, the Bible clearly teaches that if you have genuinely put your faith in Christ and genuinely responded in repentance and faith, then the moment that happened, already Jesus has come and taken up residence in your heart. That should give you great confidence because Jesus was strong enough to kick Satan out of his house there's no way Satan's going to be able to kick Jesus out of your house. We can live with full confidence that the one living inside us is greater than the one living in the world. And though Satan and his demons might try and trick us and do various things to us, they'll never be able to dominate us because Jesus abides within us. Uh, kids, this morning, uh, do you know that you can invite Jesus to come live in your heart? There's no age limit on that. You don't have to be 13 or 18. All you have to do is to believe what Jesus has said here is true and to ask him to come save you and live within you. If you do that, one day when Satan and his demons come knocking, they'll hear Jesus on the inside of your heart saying, occupied, go try somewhere else. If you don't know how to do that, kids, ask your parents. They'd love to tell you how it is you can Invite Jesus to come live in your heart. Now, for those of us who have made the decision to give our lives to Christ, to be citizens of his kingdom, and have even felt his abiding presence within us, <clears throat> what do you remember if Jesus lives within you? That he's going to do some renovations in the home of your heart. Uh, little by little, you'll see yourself changing. Desires that shift from one thing to the next. Patterns that formerly seemed like they'd never go away, now freed from them. And more and more desiring 
that the kingdom of God would be seen in your life and in the world around you. Uh, don't resist it. Uh, in fact, realize that this is a mark of your salvation and in fact, a, moment, a point of great assurance for your soul. Kingdoms collide, you have to decide. If you abide with Jesus, then you are safe indeed. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he'll see you safely into his Father's eternal kingdom. So would you trust him? And no matter what Satan throws at you or how despondent your soul might feel, no matter how many devils try and discourage you, would you remember the abiding presence of Christ will never abandon you. You are his. He is yours. Your home is with him and his home is in you. You've made your decision you belong with Jesus. All of this happened through the power of the cross. In just a moment, we're going to sing a song about just that and listen to some of the words. Think about how Jesus has crushed Satan, left behind that Lord of the flies and allowed you to come and make your home with him. Death is crushed to death. Life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This, the power of the cross, Son of God, slain for us. What a love, what a cost. We stand forgiven at the cross. When kingdoms collide, you have to decide. Do you abide with Jesus? Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for your power, for the very finger of God that has pressed into the hearts of each and every one of us that believe. Thank you for casting out the reign of Satan and replacing it with your just rule and reign. Uh, would you help us now to respond in joyful faith, to give you all glory, to know that you are the one that saved us, and that you'll never abandon us. That our home is with you and your home is in us. And so we have every reason to sing. Help us now to worship you, Jesus, our King over the kingdom of heaven. We pray in your name. Amen.